0: U.S. Today, the newspaper, carried the story of one of the most amazing feats in modern history. Three men, a Canadian, American, and a Taiwanese, who have now been described as ultra-athletes, decided to run across the world's largest desert, the Sahara, from Senegal to the Suez Canal in Egypt. They ran through six countries and pushed the limits of their physical and mental endurance for almost four months. And... 4,000 miles, they endured soaring heat, sometimes a hundred degree Fahrenheit. They pushed their bodies, they suffered tendinitis, severe diarrhea, cramping, and knee injuries, and yet they refused to abandon the harsh course. And they persevered until they arrived finally at the Suez Canal in Egypt. There's a sense in which the Christian is an ultra-athlete called to run in a race that involves great struggle and extreme suffering. But a call not only to run, but to persevere or to endure in this race. The writer of Hebrews is pointedly concerned about this endurance. In fact, he says this in chapter 10 and verse 36 where he says, For you need or you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God... You may receive the promise. You have need, he says, of endurance. And throughout this book of Hebrews, as he warns them about those who have fallen aside, implicitly there is a call to endure. At the beginning of chapter 12, he returns to the subject of endurance. You see then the link between chapter 11 and 12 in verse 36 he says that they need to endure now in chapter 12 he says therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What I wanted to do in this passage that we have looked at on several occasions in the past, I think this is a text that needs to be preached at least once a year, is to consider then three things from the passage. First I want us to look at the encouragement to run with endurance the race set before us. Secondly, I want to look at the reason for endurance, to run the race with endurance. And thirdly, we want to consider the means by which we run the Christian race with endurance. And so first then, the encouragement. The encouragement to run with endurance. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, Witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. This here is the main verb, run, let us run. That's the verb. And the writer says, let us run with endurance. Clearly, it is the idea of a foot race that he uses to liken the Christian life. The life of faith, the relationship with God, he likens it or compares it to a long distance race. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. In this word race, agon, could refer to conflict and struggle, but in this particular instance, it is, of course, A race that is being described here. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. The encouragement to run the Christian race begs the question, what kind of race is it? Surely it is a spiritual race. But we can say more things about the Christian race, the life of faith that you and I are called to live. First then, the Christian race involves rigorous self-discipline and extreme Exertion, the very terminology run and race suggests that what he calls us to in terms of our Christian pursuit is not some leisurely stroll but an activity requiring self denial and strenuous effort. We are to run, therefore, let us run with endurance. Is calling. For self discipline, it's calling for extreme exertion, for tremendous effort and energy. Let us run. The Apostle Paul identifies that the Christian race involves this self discipline. It involves this tremendous struggle. For he says in one Corinthians nine, twenty four to twenty seven, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, disciplined in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Thus I run. Or therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I should myself be disqualified. The Christian race requires rigorous self-discipline and extreme exertion. I run, Paul says, I discipline my body, I give it a black eye. Here is a call for extreme discipline and extreme effort. But the Christian race, secondly, not only does it involve rigorous self-discipline and extreme exertion, the Christian race, the life of faith, the relationship with God, entails continuous forward movement. And I think that the reason that the race, the athletic competition, is such an apt metaphor for the Christian life, is precisely because like a race which moves continually forward, The Christian life is one that moves continually forward. We are to run this race. We are to pursue the Christian life, life growing more and more. In fact, the the present tense is used here. Um, Let us run with endurance. It means let us continually run or let us run continually. Let us run moving forward. Those who are involved in the life of faith must be making progress. We must be growing in faith. And growing in the Christian grace, growing in the knowledge of God, growing in love, growing in holiness. There is a forward movement to the Christian life. No person who is saved can remain in the same place year in and year out. There must be progress. This is a race and it goes forward. Because we are knowing more about Christ. We are being conformed more and more to him. We are in fact bringing all thoughts into captivity to Christ. Christ is taking more territory in our lives. You see, there is a forward movement and growth in the Christian life. And so it is like a race which continually moves forward. But the Christian life not only requires exertion and forward movement. It involves endurance. The writer says, let us run with endurance. And this term, endurance, hypermene, means to remain under difficulty, remain under pressure. It's not the same as patience, although there there are semantic overlaps. The the meanings of patience and endurance, there are of course similarities. But the, the nuance is different. Because whereas patience might admit passivity, that is you simply remain, you simply stay in a position... Endurance means to stay in position, to bear up under extreme pressure. And the Christian life requires endurance. This race, this race of faith, and involves endurance not only because the Christian life is long, but because it is difficult. It is fraught with many challenges and many hardships that would discourage. God's people from persevering, and so the writer says, let us run, but let us run with endurance, bearing up under extreme pressure and hardship. You see, this Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. It requires endurance, and unlike the races that we see, the winner in the Christian life is not the person who comes first. Who crosses the line first. The winner in the Christian life is the person who finishes. Because it is a race to the end. It is a race of endurance. But fourthly, this race that we are to run with endurance follows a prescribed course. The writer says here in verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is a particular, a prescribed course. You know, Waze, if you have a smartphone, is one of the rising navigation apps. And this, this is not an advertisement for it, but merely an observation. What Waze does when you put in your destination is that it gives you at least three different routes to your destination. And it will tell you, for instance, if you want to absolve, uh, avoid tall roads, and it will tell you if there are obstacles along the way, if you want a different road, a different route to your destination. Waze is good at giving you different routes to the same place that you want to go. But there are not different courses and routes in the Christian life. There's only one way. You see, the writer says, let us run with endurance, this race that is set before us, this race is the way of the narrow way. The narrow way that we enter through regeneration and conversion. This road that we pursue is that by which we have been brought by Christ and by His Spirit. We have been quickened, we have been given new life and we have been sent on this course though difficult, that leads to heaven. It has a distinct beginning and it has a distinct ending. It's a narrow way. It's the way of holiness, the way of love, and the way of devotion to Christ. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. And notice what the writer says. He says, let us run. What he's doing there is to make it clear that all Christians are called upon to run the Christian race. Without exception. See there's no Christian who can claim to know Christ. Who is not running this race. Living unto God. And making progress in spiritual things. All believers are called. The writer says let us run. With endurance the race set before us. He includes himself. He also is called to run. Well we see the. Encouragement to run with endurance, the race set before us. But the text shows us the reason. And the reason is found at the beginning of the verse, verse 12. It is conveyed by the use of a participle and a conjunction. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of weakness, Weaknesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles. And let us run with endurance a race set before us. He says, therefore, and clearly what it means is that he's drawing certain implications or inferences from what occurred in verse 11. Therefore, based on what you have seen in chapter 11, based upon the gallery of faith catalogue of the great heroes and heroines of faith. Therefore on the basis of this, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And in fact literally he says, therefore having around us or having surrounding us a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run. The reason that believers then are given to persevere and to run the Christian race with endurance, it is because they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Well, right here we venture into some difficulty in understanding what the writer is saying. When the writer says, having a great cloud of witnesses around us, let us run. The question is, what does he mean by witnesses? There are some who says, that what the writer does is that he invokes the idea, he conjures up the idea of an amphitheater, of a stadium. We are the runners on the track, and we have in the stands a great cloud of witnesses, that is, saints who have died and are in heaven, and they are watching us. And therefore, those commentators would argue that we are called to run because we have this great cloud of witnesses witnessing, looking at, observing, our conduct as we pursue the Christian life. That's one understanding of witnesses. But I suggest to you there's another way of looking at this text and perhaps even more accurately. That is, the great cloud of witnesses to which he referred does not refer to saints in heaven who are watching us, who are observing our conduct, but rather who themselves are bearing Witness. You see, we can talk about a witness in two senses, at least two senses. We can talk about a witness as one who observes. For example, there is an accident at Jarvis and Gerard, and there are people standing on the sidewalk. Well, these people are observing. They are seen then as witnesses. But those same people could go to court if it were a matter that warranted a lawsuit, and they were giving evidence in court. In that instance, they are not observing, but they are rather testifying. They are giving evidence of what they have seen, of what they have experienced. And I suggest to you that when the writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he is not referring to those who are observing us as witnesses, but those who are testifying to us. What he's saying is that the heroes and heroines of faith, the Noah and the Abraham and the Moses and the Rahabs and the Gideons and the Baraks and the Samsons and the Jephthahs and the Davies and the prophets, they are there and their lives are giving testimony of those who have suffered, overcame kingdoms, those who have been put through their paces, under extreme suffering and hardship, they nevertheless endured and were victorious. And what he's saying, you're running in this race. And there are those who have gone into heaven before you. Their lives are naked and open before you. That there is victory in persevering in faith. And so what he's saying is that you're to run. Because you belong to a continual stream of salvation history. We often think of the church as an existential entity, a church that exists here and now. And we often do not view the church from the perspective of history and God's working through the century. Well, we belong to that continuous stream of salvation history. We are connected with all the people of God who have gone before and all the people of God who will come after us. And there are those who have gone into heaven before us. We are connected to them. They have run successfully the race by enduring, by faith. And they have left us a testimony that it is possible to overcome and to endure even through hardship and abuse. We are connected to them. But all enduring is important, not only because we have their lives as witnesses, and not only because we are connected to them, but the writer says that these who endured, this great army of witnesses, this great throng of witnesses in heaven, these endured, they believed, and yet they did not receive the promise. They did not receive full and final perfection. Because God had ordained that they should not be perfected apart from us. We are running this race because we belong to this stream. We are living in solidarity with all of God's people. But we must run this race because uh, the perfection of those who belong to the great cloud of witnesses. And our perfection cannot take place unless it is done together. Why must we run? Because all of us have gone ahead before us and we belong to that stream of salvation history. Why must we run? Because God's people, both Old and New Testament people, cannot be perfected unless they're perfected together. And so they await our arrival when we have completed our course. Well, we've seen the encouragement to run this race which requires discipline and exertion and endurance and pursuing a prescribed course. We have seen the reason for this because we are surrounded by a great army of witnesses of people who have traveled the same road that we have traveled, who have suffered as we have suffered for the name of our God, and they have endured and are victorious. But the passage tells us one more thing. It tells us the means by which we are unable to run with endurance the race set before us. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, he tells us that we are to endure. He tells us why we are to endure, because we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now he tells us the means or how we are to endure. And the first thing he says that we are to do if we are to run with endurance, is we are to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Here we have another participle. We had one in verse 1 where it may not be very apparent in your translation. Having so great a cloud of witnesses. That was the first participle. And the participle qualifies, modifies the main verb run. Now we find the second participle modifying run. Laying aside. Literally that's what it says. Laying aside every weight, we are to run, and those of us who are to run this race, continue and persevere in the Christian faith, must do so first by stripping off every weight, just like an athlete who is going to run a marathon. He must strip himself of weight. That is, he must, if he is rotund, large, he must slim down. He must get rid of unnecessary bodily fat. He must strip off and lay aside the weights which which he had been training. He must put aside his outer garment. It is said that in the ancient games, the athletes arrived in the stadium in their robes. But before they entered the race, they had to strip off their their, 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 their robes, stripped down to their trunks. Their running shorts. And this is the imagery that is before us. Let us lay aside every weight. This language of laying aside every weight or putting off every weight is further amplified when the writer says, "And the sin which so easily entangles us that to run the race, we must first of all divest, strip off every sin that entangles, hinders, ensnares us. This language of putting off sin, of stripping off sin is used repeatedly by the Apostle Paul. I can only point you to a couple instances. We think of Romans chapter 13 verse 12 where Paul says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off uh, the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Uh, the writer, in describing Christian behavior, talks about casting off sin, like you peel off and throw aside a dirty shirt or dress, where well, we are to cast off sinful deeds, sinful acts, as we, we would do some dirty clothing. Paul uses the same word of casting off or laying aside Again, in Colossians 3, verse 8, he says, But now you yourselves are to put off. Well, it's to lay aside, to cast aside. You are to put off, he says, the works of darkness. Well, put off anger, sorry, put off wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Colossians 3, 8. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, to lay off these sins what he's saying then is that we must put aside the sin and th- there's been debate as to what the sin means some have said it means put aside the sin of apostasy but I, don't, I don't think that's clear because that certainly I think is incorrect because if they were to apostatize they would not be saved they could not be brought back and so it's not apostasy that he's saying he uses sin generically he does not specify the sin he means that every sin every attitude every wrong motive every wrong action, anything that displeases God, anything that is contrary to the revelation of the word of God, anything that is disobedient to the revealed will of God, we must strip it off and toss it aside if you're going to run this race. you cannot run this race, this Christian race burdened down with our sins. So that's the first thing we're going to do if you're going to run the race. We must strip off. We must lay aside the weight, that is the sin which so easily entangles us. But the second thing that he tells us we must do if you're going to run the Christian race, live the life that is pleasing to God by faith. He says we're going to run the race looking unto Jesus, that's verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Here we find the third participle. Which modifies the verb run. What is he saying? You must run the race casting aside every weight and the sin that is so easily entangled. But you have to run the race looking unto Jesus. That the only way to run this race is by contemplating and continually contemplating Christ. Now the term that is used here to look is not the ordinary term or the regular term that the apostle Paul or the other writers of scripture use for looking. This is a term that means to look away from something and to look to something else. In other words, it is a term that means one ought to look away from something and to look at something else without distraction. And what is he saying? He is saying that if we are to run this race, we must look away from everything else and to look to Christ and continually look to Christ without distraction. We had to run this Christ, therefore focused, without distraction, on Jesus Christ. Franz was 72 years old when she decided she was going to run the Boston Marathon for the last time. She had run over 76 marathons in her life. And at 72, she decided that there was no way that she was going to win the Boston Marathon. It was 26 miles or something like that. And so she thought she was going to enjoy the moment. And so she entered the Boston Martin and began running. And the first thing that she did as she quote-unquote embraced the moment is that she stopped along the course to chat with people who were on the sidelines. After she took a few more steps, she stopped to rest. There was no real hurry in tearing down the track, so she rested, used the washroom and so on. And then she continued. And then again she stopped and did a little bit of sightseeing and window shopping. And eventually she came to a garage sale and she stopped and went over and started looking at the items there and was going to buy something. And she said that something hit her in the mind and said, but you shouldn't be buying anything in a race. So she continued. I don't know what Franz thought she was doing. But I would suggest to you with all due respect, She was not running a marathon Because a marathon requires soberness You know, we have all kinds of people running in the Toronto Marathon And it's amazing, some of them are very serious people They train for months, even for a year for the Toronto Marathon But then there are some who run They stop along the road and they're doing selfies And they're blowing kisses to themselves with their cell phones and so on I want to suggest to you that whatever they're doing, they're not running a marathon Because that requires soberness, it requires seriousness, it requires a running without distraction. And the writer says, looking off from everything else and looking on to Christ. Let us run the race set before us with endurance. You see, the only way to run the Christian race is by looking directly to Jesus Christ. And he goes on to describe him. He calls him Jesus. Notice the text. He says looking unto Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is caught up. He is vastly enamored with Christ. He speaks of Jesus several times. In fact many times throughout this epistle. He describes Jesus. Jesus. To whom we must look. The object of our contemplation. As the one who shared our nature. He says. But we see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death. Now crowned with glory and honor. In chapter 2 verse 9. We see Jesus. Who was made lower than. He was God the son. The very image and the imprint of the nature of God. He was the creator of the world, upholding the world by the strength of his word. But we see Jesus, who humbled himself and became lower than the angel. But now for the suffering of death, he's been crowned with glory and honor. He says, I want you to consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession in chapter 3 verse 1. He tells us Jesus Christ is the son of God who has passed through the heavens and he came into the world. He died but he was raised and he has passed through the heavens in chapter 4 verse 14. He reminds us that Jesus has become a high priest forever in chapter 6 verse 20. In chapter 7 verse 22, Jesus is a surety, the guarantee of of a better covenant. In chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus has sanctified us through the offering of his body once for all. Or he reminds, in, in chapter 10, verse 10, he reminds us Jesus has granted us access to the Father by His blood. Access to the holy of holy by his blood. In chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. Chapter 13, 21. He reminds us that Jesus is the one through whom God works his will and works what is pleasing to him. And he describes Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep whom God raised from the dead in chapter 13 verse 20. It is this Jesus who existed in eternity as God the Son who took flesh and became lower than angels who became our high priest and surety of a better covenant who by one offering for sins Satisfy the wrath of God and redeemed us. And this Christ who is in heaven and who is there on our be- behalf. This Christ, he says, better look to him. He describes him looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He uses a term for author, Archigos, Which seems to have two different nuances. Looking unto Jesus, the author. This term... first of all means source you see he is the source of our life it is he who initiates faith it is he who grants us faith he is the author of our faith but he is the archegos in the sense that he is the pioneer or the trailblazer the one who has gone ahead and so what is he saying you have to look to Christ the archegos the source of your faith But the one who is the paradigm of faith, the one who is the model and the example of faith, the one who is a trailblazer who has lived a life of perfect faith and trust in God before you. You have to look to Christ as your model. He is the archegos, the source, and the pioneer, the trailblazer, the model, the example of faith. And then he says the perfecter of faith. It is Christ, you see, who brings faith to completion it is he who matures and completes our faith. So we have to look to Christ, the source, Christ, the example, Christ, the perfecter of our faith. And he will continue to talk about Christ as the example of faith. For he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He reminds us that Christ is the perfect example of faith because he endured the cross despising The shame. The cross was a place. Of extreme. Unimaginable suffering. When our Lord was nailed there. But it was also a place. Of shame. Our Lord Jesus Christ. The son of God. Died as a criminal. Worse than anyone else. In Roman society. And yet. Though the cross was. Seen as. The ultimate shame. The writer says he endured the cross despising the shame. This is in some sense unimaginable. Despising the shame. Thinking lightly of the shame of the cross. He did not think the cross was beneath him to suffer for his people. He endured the cross. He remained faithful despite the shame of the cross. He did not seek to be delivered from it. He did not cut and run. He remained faithful, despising the shame of the cross. Why? He says because of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that he had before him? Well, he looked beyond the cross. He looked beyond the shame of the cross. And he saw the joy that he had with the Father. He saw heaven itself. And the result then of his faithful endurance of the cross, despising the shame, he says, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, it's the same thing that we find in chapter 1. Jesus was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. To sit down at the throne of God or sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high, refer to the reward of his obedience and his endurance. God rewarded him by granting to him at his right hand, at the throne of majesty, at the throne of God, the highest honor. It's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. When he sat down at the right hand of God, it refers to the fact that he receives all honor and all dignity and all power in heaven. In other words, he's saying that he has been installed in heaven as king. Because he endured the shame of the cross for our sins. Seeing the joy, the joy of being with his father. And receiving his rightful place as king of the universe, he endured the cross. Well, the writer says that believers are to run with perseverance at the run with Jesus set before them. You and I must run the Christian race with perseverance. Every long-distant runner faces at some point the barrier of fatigue. There's a point in the race where the runner will become sometimes light-headed where legs and arms feel as heavy as lead and there's a temptation that comes a temptation to say stop don't abuse your body any further you don't need this quit have a long drawer of water, cold water get out of the race and every long distant runner knows that when the mind begins to tempt, they must push through the barrier of fatigue or else they will lose the race. We, like the first century readers of this epistle, are tempted to succumb to spiritual fatigue and to discouragement, to say that we don't need this life of hardship, of temptation, of stress and of strain of being ostracized and ridiculed by the world. There's a temptation to say, let's give it all up. Let's throw it in. And yet the writer says, we are to run with endurance. Why? Because the Bible reminds us in Matthew 10, it is he who endures to the end who will be saved. Already in chapter 10, verse 38 of Hebrews, it says, now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are to run with endurance, regardless of the discouragement. We are to run with endurance when things are hard and when things are good. This is a race not for quitters. You see, there will not be quitters in heaven. That's where quitters go, they go to hell. But you and I are to run with Endurance. We are to make up our hearts and our minds and to say we have entered this race. A race to glory and there is nothing in this world will cause us to drop out of this race. We're going to run with endurance. The endurance with which we run is not our strength. It is a strength that God gives us. But we are surrounded by a great cloud of weaknesses. Some of them in the first century were burnt at the stake like polycrop. Some of them were eaten by lions in the theater. Some of them were banished from their homeland like John the Apostle. But one thing all of them did is that they endured. And we are surrounded by this vast throng of saints in glory who have been in battle, who have stood their ground and have been exalted to glory. You must endure But if you're going to run this race, this Christian race with endurance, you must cast aside hindrances and impediments. If you make your choice heaven, if you have received Christ as your Lord, you must break with sin. You cannot make progress to heaven while you're still carrying the burden of sin. You must be like pilgrim. Who leaves behind the burden of sin. You must be delivered from sin and you must part from sin. The things in this world, the things of this life, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. The pleasures of the world, they must all be abandoned. Because you cannot run to heaven bringing your sins with you. You must leave them behind. Is there a sin that is holding you back? Is there a particular sin that is holding you back? sitting down not too long ago with a professor I won't tell you his name but he was telling us us his testimony and he was saying to us that as a young man he was converted early his father was a pastor but he was a kleptomaniac he stole things went into stores and shoplifted and he said after A while, he fell into a a bad crowd, even while he was professing faith in Christ. And one day, he heard a sermon that challenged him, that rebuked him about living the Christian life and living it wholly unto God. And he talked about the moment he walked into a store and he was tempted to steal, as he has always done. And he said, Something came over him. A presence came over him. And as though something or someone spoke to him in his heart and said, You don't have to do this. And he left the store. And he had never stolen again 60 years later. Never once. You need to know that you don't have to do it that you don't have to pursue and carry that sin that holds you back because there is victory in Jesus Christ who gives you more strength than all the challenges that the world can amass against you. You do not have to live in sin. You must trust to the grace of God. If you're to run this race, you must abandon sin, all sin, the big ones and the little ones. But to run this race and to run it well, to run it successfully, you must keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You must look to Christ and not to self. Because he is the source of salvation. It is the Lord who says, look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Charles Spurgeon grew up in a godly home and one Sunday morning it was in winter snowed he couldn't arrive at the church where he regularly worshipped so he passed into a little church and there's a pastor there preaching who didn't know much or a, a preacher a lay preacher preaching who did not know much theology but he drew up on this text his message was very simple he says well what does the text say the text says look unto me and he went on further. He says, Well, you're not to look at everything else. God says, Look unto me. And he says, What, what, what is the result of looking unto him? Well, you'll be saved. What of the simplest sermons. I wonder why preachers like myself don't preach simple sermons like this. Look unto me and be saved. And Spurgeon looked, and he was saved. And Jesus says to you, Look to me, and you will be saved. It's a look of faith, it's a look of reliance, a look of trust. It's a look that is born from our impotency that says, Lord, I need you. But if you look, you will live. If you believe, you will be saved. And when you are saved by looking at Christ, you must run continually looking to him. Looking to him for grace, looking to him for strength. Knowing that you can never run unless you will receive everlasting help. Unless you draw from deep spiritual wealth. Unless you tap into the power and the source of all strength that comes from Jesus Christ. Look. How do you live a Christian life? You run it Look into Christ as the one who enables you. As the one who gives you grace. You look to Christ as your greatest example. Oh yes Moses and Abraham and David were great examples. But Christ is our perfect example of enduring faith. When he suffered, he endured, despising the shame. And what was the result of his endurance of our Lord? Well, he received his reward because he endured. And what was his reward? Not a victor's wreath, not gold or silver. He received the greatest of prizes. Years ago, there was a troop a group of performers, musicians and performers, who went around performing. And after months on the road, the money began to dry up. They went from place to place and they performed before smaller and smaller audiences. One day they arrived in this town and when the money was collected before they performed, it was just a few shillings, a few coins. And they were discouraged. And one of the performers said to the others, I think we should just cancel the performance tonight. From the money we have received, we know that there are not going to be many people here. Furthermore, it is snowing outside. People are called. And they're all in agreement. And they turn to an older performer and said, what do you think? And he said, well... They have paid us to perform. And if only one comes, let us sing and perform to the best ability as if though this place was packed. And so they agreed. They did not quit. And they performed. And they sang as they'd never sung before. They gave their heart. They gave everything they had. And at the end of the performance, the leader of the group came Because a note was handed to him. And on the note was one sentence, one simple sentence, which he read before the performers. You are duly summoned to my home. And it was signed, your king. Among the few who had gathered there was their king. And he now invites them to his home to perform for the rest of their lives. You are living and you are running this Christian race. But you are living and running the Christian race in the audience of one, God himself. And when you have completed this race, he will say, you are called to my home. Where you will be with me forever. It is not just to inherit heaven. That's not just the reward. I want to read to you in closing the reward that God told the Laodicean that awaits them when their race is complete. In writing to the Laodicean, our Lord says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame And sat down with my father on his throne. This is mind-boggling stuff that we cannot fully interpret. Jesus says to Laodicean, to those who overcome, I will grant them to sit on my throne as I overcame and sat on my father's throne. What awaits us, you see, is to join in with God and with the Lamb in reigning over creation. The reward of endurance is not merely going to heaven, it's not merely singing and worshiping in heaven, though these are delighted, delight, delectable things. No, it is to reign with Christ, to sit on his throne. In the old days, when it was permitted, For us to drive without seat belts and have our children sit in our lap while we are driving. You'll have your little son, eight years old, and he will be holding the steering wheels while you're driving. And then eventually you pass him off back to mom. You know what heaven is going to be like? We're going to be sitting in the lap of our Savior holding the steering wheel of this universe and steering it to God's intended end with our Savior's hand on the steering wheel. He's going to permit us to rule and to share in his reign over creation, directing the entire universe with our Savior. That's heaven. To reign with him. Listen, those who suffer with Christ shall also reign with him. May God bless you, that you will run with endurance and reign with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us the grace to endure, to be faithful in an unfaithful world, to live differently in a wicked and sinful world to shine like lights, to continue to trust in a world of unbelief and skepticism. Oh, Father, we pray, keep us faithful and keep before us the joy that awaits, the joy of seeing you in the face of Christ and reigning with the Savior. And for those who do not know that we pray that these things might remain in their hearts, And for saints who are discouraged, Lord, that they may be encouraged and strengthened by this challenge from your word. We pray all of this for Christ's sake. Amen.